Some of you were on vacation last week or out of town last week, so I will repeat what I said last week. I'll begin where I began last week. While we work through the minor prophets, you have my blessing to use the table of contents. Nobody is going to look down on you. Nobody is going to think less of you. Feel free. Some of you feel like you've already got this handled. You didn't bring a hard copy of the Bible. You brought your iPad or your iPhone, so you can just type it in and look it up and say, nobody will know that I don't know where the book of Joel is, which is what we're talking about this morning. In the Protestant tradition, our Old Testaments end with 12 books that we call minor prophets. We call them minor prophets, not because they're not important or their message wasn't powerful, but because the books are short. They're shorter than Isaiah and Ezekiel and, uh, and Jeremiah and Daniel, so we call them the minor prophets. In Jewish tradition, they have the exact same books, they just group them together a little bit differently, and they take these 12 and they cram them together into something that... At times, they refer to as the book of the 12, and they think about all of these guys and their messages and their ministries together. And this morning, we're on week two of this sermon series, one Sunday in each of the minor prophets, and this morning, we're going to talk about the book of Joel. Just a couple of background issues to try to lay some historical context for this this little book that is very, very old that most of us know very little about that I think will help us make sense of the message of the book going forward. First of all, let's say this. Joel probably, emphasis on the word probably, probably preached after the Assyrian and Babylonian exiles. The honest truth is nobody knows when Joel lived. Nobody knows when he preached. Nobody knows what date to slap on this book. If you have a study Bible, you may look down and read in the notes and you may find a different answer than what I'm suggesting to you this morning. But I think there's a a couple of clues, small clues, that would lead us to believe that Joel preached after the people had been sent into exile by the Assyrians and after the southern kingdom of Judah had been sent into exile by the Babylonians. Now, some of that already makes no sense to you. So let me put it on a timeline for you to see what we're talking about. First is the unified kingdom. This is the nation of Israel under Saul and then David and then Solomon. All of God's people in one geopolitical nation all together unified. Then comes the divided kingdom. A guy named Rehoboam and a guy named Jeroboam take the kingdom and they split it in half. Israel is the nation in the north. Judah is the nation in the south. Then you fast forward many, many kings and you come to something called the Assyrian exile. That's the nation or the empire of Assyria marching on the northern kingdom of Israel, conquering Samaria, taking the people into exile. Then you keep going a little bit further and you reach the Babylonian exile. That's where Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians march against the southern kingdom of Judah and they take They sack Jerusalem. They take the people into exile. And what I'm suggesting to you is that we take Joel and we put Joel right after the Assyrian and the Babylonian exiles. Why would we put him there? One reason is that when you read the book of Joel, he never mentions a king. Most of the prophets do this. Just if you have your Bible open, flip back to the left. Look at Hosea 1.1. We saw this last week says, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, 
and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So right out of the gate in Hosea, you know where to put him on the timeline because he dates himself with these kings. If you fast forward, you flip over to the right, you come to the book of Amos, which we're going to talk about next week, and Amos 1.1 says the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So he tells you, this is when I lived. He dates himself by these kings. When you come to Joel, he just jumps right in. He doesn't date himself. And some Bible scholars look at that and say, maybe Joel didn't mention a king. He didn't date himself by a king because there was no king. The northern kingdom of Israel had been conquered and sent out of town. And the southern kingdom of Judah had been conquered and sent out of town. And there was no king for him to date himself with. So maybe there's something to that. Also, if you have your Bible open, you might just look at Joel 3, verse 2. There's a reference in Joel 3, 2 to the people being scattered among the nations. And somebody has divided up the land. And it's not really as clear as we might like it to be, but some Bible scholars point to that verse, Joel 3, 2, and they say, look, that's, that's the exile. These wicked kingdoms have been judged for their sin. The Assyrians came, then the Babylonians came. They've sent the people into exile, and Joel comes right on the heels of that period. So I think that's a, a safe bet. Here's the second thing I want you to understand. Joel preached in the aftermath of a devastating locust plague. Right on the heels of a devastating locust plague. Take your Bible and look at Joel 1. We won't read the whole account, but let's just read a few verses. Joel 1, starting in verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. And let your children tell their children and their children to another generation what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Waves of a locust plague being sent against the land. And Joel says, if you take him at his word, he says, you haven't experienced anything like this in your lifetime. Your parents and your grandparents never experienced anything like this. And your kids and your grandkids are never going to experience anything quite like this. This is sort of a a once-in-a-lifetime type event. Now, when I put on your notes, he preached in the aftermath of a devastating locust plague. I, I wish I could just ask each of you, I can't, Some of you are going to answer when I give you this rhetorical question anyways. I know who you are. I'm going to ignore you as I always do. But I'm curious, what comes into your mind when I say there was a devastating locust plague? Some of you say, well, we know all about locusts. We live in West Texas, and it's fall, and you hear them in the trees buzzing in the evenings, and you see the little crunchy shells on the, on the tree. And uh, this is the first year my son, the other night, he said, Dad, there's, there's a motorcycle next door. I can't go to sleep at night. And it was just this awareness that there's a noise and what is it? And so some of you think, yeah, yeah, we know all about, all about locusts. I'm just, I'm telling you that it's worse than that in what Joel's describing. It's not like just the, the yearly outbreak of locusts or cicadas. 
A couple of things come to my mind in different places that I lived. Before we moved here, we lived in Kingfisher, Oklahoma. And every year in Kingfisher, there is an outbreak of crickets. And I'm telling you, there's a bunch of them. A bunch of them. And our church sat, First Baptist Kingfisher, it sat sort of on the edge of town and there was wheat field on three sides of the church. And so I think all the crickets that lived in that wheat field ended up having a party every year at our church. They came to the church. And I can remember many Sunday mornings getting there early. Emma used to go with me. We'd pick up a donut on the way. We'd get to the church. We'd get up to the driveway where the lights shone down on the concrete. And it was just solid black, several inches deep with crickets. And so we'd be out there, Emma and I, with a push broom, early Sunday morning, sweeping dead crickets into a heap. So that's one thing that comes to mind. And this is sort of comical. I also remember... We tried our best to get rid of the crickets in the building. But there was a spot right behind the sanctuary where a little cricket colony always lived. And in church, for about three Sundays in a row, all the way through my preaching, you could hear crickets chirping behind me. And I thought, what a great background effect for a sermon. Crickets (laughs) chirping in the background. Some of you are looking up, can I get a cricket sound on my phone right now? Can I play it in church? Corey's already thought about it. So I think about the crickets. I also think about 2004, my wife and I moved to Louisville, Kentucky. And 2004 was the year, we moved in May, it was the year that the 17-year cicada hatched. And when we moved, we started hearing about this, and I thought, what in the world? I don't, we have locusts. What's the big deal? We've got them in Amarillo. I've been around them all my life. We had never been around anything like this. And apparently, these babies go on the ground. They sit there for 17 years, and then they come out. And they came out in 2004 in May in the Ohio River Valley, and they were everywhere. Everywhere. Little guys, they looked exactly like this. They had red eyes and orange wings, and they were coming around. They're going to be hatching again soon. Here's what I remember about these guys. I remember the day we moved in, you know, you're carrying boxes in and furniture in, and the locusts are just everywhere because the doors open and the locusts are coming in. I sort of felt like I was in the book of Exodus or something like that. And so it goes on for a couple of weeks. Locusts just everywhere. You can see them flying. You can hear them all day long. But then they start dying off about June. And they die off in such big piles that the city of Louisville runs the street sweepers for about two weeks just to sweep up these dead 17-year cicadas. And they smell terrible. Just piles of them and piles of them and piles of them. So I read this in Joel and I read, okay, there's a cutting locust and there's a a swarming locust and a hopping locust and a destroying locust, all these waves. And I feel like I have some category for that. Maybe you do too. I just want you to understand it was worse than anything I've experienced in Oklahoma or worse than anything I've experienced in Kentucky. This was an event of, let's say, biblical proportions, Just to try to help you wrap your mind around this, let me share with you the 1915 December edition of National Geographic. They didn't put the the big fancy pictures on the front back in that day, but this is the, uh, the cover article from that magazine, and that's the little critter that they're talking about. They were talking about, in this article, a locust plague in the Middle East 
1915. Here's some of the numbers the researchers threw out. They estimated, this 1915 plague, that in a single square mile, there were at least 100 million locusts in a single square mile. And at one point, this, I don't know if you call them a herd or a swarm or whatever you call them, 460 square miles. 100 million in a square mile, and the whole thing covers 460 square miles. Each one of them could eat their weight in vegetation a day, every day. And you've just got this swarm moving across the countryside, destroying everything in its path. This was a tree the day before and the day after the plague rolled through. You can find the picture in the, in the 1950 National Geographic. I mean, these critters rolled through and everything was gone. We say, well, what's the big deal? We live in West Texas. We don't have a whole lot to eat anyways. We're going to the grocery store for our food. But these are people who depended on agriculture. And here comes one wave after another of these insects just destroying everything in their path. This was an event. You just got to get it in your brain. This was an event of biblical proportions. It was absolutely devastating for the people to live through this. So much so that Joel says, Joel says, your parents have never seen anything like this. You know all the stories your parents tell you about the good old days or the bad old days or walking uphill to school and all that stuff? Joel says they never went through anything like this. And he says your grandkids are going to be talking about it to their grandkids someday. It's something that you've never experienced in your life, which leads me to the summary of the book of Joel. If we summarize the whole book, we would say this. Joel is a book about the day of the Lord. That's what the book is about, the day of the Lord. And some of you like to make notes, extra notes, or some of you like to mark things in your Bible. If you like to do that sort of thing, let me give you some references to check out. Look at Joel 1.15. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Look at Joel chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy hill. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Same phrase. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Look at Joel chapter 2, verse 31. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. One more reference in chapter 3, verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The day of the Lord. It's a short book, and it shows up five times. He brings it up over and over and over again. And some of you say, ah, Joel's about the day of the Lord. That means Joel is about the end times, right? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. When you read this phrase in Joel, or when you read it anywhere in the Old Testament or the New Testament, the day of the Lord is not just an end times thing, like a last days thing. The day of the Lord is any day where God takes decisive action. 
any day where God stops waiting and he actually does something decisive. And in Joel's mind, it could be in the past, it could be in the future, it could be, it could be a day of judgment and punishment, or it could be a day of salvation and rejoicing. All of those things fall under the heading, the day of the Lord. But what Joel is talking about over and over and over again is there's going to be a day. This day is coming. Maybe it's come in the past. Maybe from our perspective today it's in the past. Maybe it's still in the future from our perspective. But it's a day where God takes decisive action. A day where he takes decisive action. What I want to do this morning is I want you to keep your Bible handy or your phone handy. We're going to look at different passages in the book of Joel. It's not a long book, but it's long enough that we're not going to read all of it. But I want you to have your Bible handy. We're going to try to answer a few questions about Joel the man and then think about his message. So this will be quick. What do we know about Joel? On a personal level, we just don't know much. We know what his name means. His name means Yahweh is God. So the Jews like to to take different words and mash them together and come up with names that had meaning and significance. And what they did is they took Yahweh and they took Elohim and they mashed them together. And one of the combinations you can get is Joel. So his name means Yahweh is God. Second, he was probably a contemporary of Obadiah. We'll talk about Obadiah in a few weeks, so you can just keep that one on ice. Third, we know almost nothing about his personal life. We, we just don't know much about who this guy was. If you look at verse 1 in chapter 1, it says the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. So we know his father's name. Outside of that, we really don't know anything about this guy. One of the things you'll see in the minor prophets is this. Their message is more, imper- more important than who they are. Their, their words, their sermons, their writings are more important than their personal history, their personal story. Yes, God used them, but it wasn't really about them. It was about the message that they were delivering on God's behalf. That's certainly true of Joel. What was his message? We're going to just sum it up with a couple of of simple ideas that you see repeated throughout this book. Here's the first idea. God had judged and would judge his people. He had judged, and he would judge his people for their sin. You read about this locust plague in chapter 1, and what Joel is saying to the people is, that was God's judgment on you. He sent these little critters to eat up all of your food, and it was a punishment and a judgment for your sin. Now, If you just think about the Old Testament, when's the first time you read about a locust plague? It's not in the book of Joel, is it? you got to dial it back all the way to the Exodus, where Moses is bringing God's people out of the promised land, and on God's behalf, Moses is bringing judgment down on Pharaoh, this wicked king who's enslaved God's people, refuses to let them go, and part of the judgment on Pharaoh is a locust plague. If you keep reading past the book of Exodus, you'll eventually end up in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses has led the people out, and he's got one last chance to talk to the folks, one last chance to talk to the nation, right? All the older generation has died in the wilderness, and this new generation is getting ready to come in. Moses is talking to these people, and at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says this, if you get into the promised land, 
And if you betray the Lord and abandon the Lord and chase after other gods, there will be a consequence. There will be a consequence. Just like God brought you into this land, God will kick you right out of it. Just like God sent all these judgments on Egypt, he will send all of those judgments on you. And he details them out. He talks about sickness and he talks about uh, their, their flocks not reproducing and dying off. And one of the things he says is, if you abandon the Lord, once he brings you into this promised land, he will send devastating plagues of locusts against you. You come to the book of Joel and you realize all of that happened. God brought them into the promised land. They abandoned the Lord to chase after other gods. He kicked them right back out of the promised land just like he said he would. And then he sent this devastating biblical plague against not Pharaoh, not the Assyrians or the Babylonians, these wicked nations, but against his people. And Joel is saying, that was God's judgment on you. He said that he was going to do it way back in Deuteronomy. He's been patient with you for centuries, but he finally did it. He has judged his people. And then he turns around when you get to Joel chapter 2, and he says he's going to do it again. Look what we read in Joel 2, verse 1 and 2. The prophet says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness, there is spread on the mountains a great and powerful people, their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations." And what he goes on to describe is this terrifying army that's going to march against God's people in judgment. I just want you to think about Joel's message at this point. His message is, God has judged you for your sin, and he is going to do it again. Right? He's not winning any awards for Motivational Speaker of the Year. Like Nobody's inviting him to speak at graduation or baccalaureate. Nobody's uplifted by this. He's just saying, God has punished you with a plague of biblical proportions for your sin in abandoning him, and he's going to do it again. It's not over. You just went through a, a plague of biblical proportions, a once-in-a-century, once-in-a-millennia type event, and now here comes an army, the likes of whom has never been seen before. And he describes him in terrifying language. In all these, all these things, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he's saying, you've been conquered You've been sent into exile. You've experienced a plague. Another army is going to march against you all because of your sin and your rebellion. Secondly, second part of his message. Through Joel, God is calling his people to genuine repentance. Genuine repentance. Look, God has put up with these people for a long time, and at this point in the story, he's sort of done playing games. And Joel's saying, you better get it together, folks. He's not looking for some external form of spirituality. He's not looking for you to jump through some sort of spiritual hoop. He is looking for genuine repentance. Look what he says in chapter 1, verse 13. He talks about sackcloth and lamenting. He talks about passing the night in sackcloth. 
because these offerings are withhold from the house of God. He's not talking about a spiritual thing you go to the temple to do. He's talking about something that's very, very personal. Verse 14, consecrate a fast and call a solemn assembly. You need to cry out to the Lord, he says. Don't be casual about this. Be intentional about it. Don't just do it by yourself. Get all the people together. Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 12. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Look at verse 13. Rend your hearts and not your garments. I bet most of you haven't used the word rend lately. What does he mean when he says rend your hearts and not your garments? The basic idea of of the word is to tear or to rip. Not casually, but violently, aggressively. You see this word or this idea used, for example, do you remember when Jesus is on trial and the high priest is questioning Jesus, asking him about who he is and what he's there to do, and Jesus sort of says, look, but you've hit the nail on the head. You know exactly who I am. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. He confesses to these things, and they charge him with blasphemy, and it says the high priest tore his garment. That's the, that's the idea. That's the word. He rent his garment. There's a passage in the book of Isaiah where the prophet is talking about God coming in judgment. And here's how Isaiah describes it. God is going to rend the heavens and come down. Not just going to casually come down. He's going to violently rip a hole in the sky and he's going to come down in judgment on his people. Joel says, rend your heart. Rip it in half. This is not something that you ought to be casual about. This is not something that's just a religious ritual. You sort of go through the motions and you say the right words. He's saying, return to me with all of your heart. Not half, all. Rend it. Tear it in half. The heart you have is worthless. Be done with it. It's of no value to you. Rend your heart. He's calling the people to genuine repentance. And we're going to come back to that in just a minute. Here's the third part of Joel's message. So far, it's pretty tough. The third part is this. He offered his people hope of future restoration. Hope that there would be restoration in the future. This is really the back half of the book. It's a lot of what Joel has to say. He starts off in chapter 2, verse 18, and he starts to talk about agricultural restoration, that the rains will come and the locusts will leave and there will be produce again in the land. Look what he says in Joel chapter 2, verse 28. He says, It will come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions, even on the male and the female servants. And in those days, I will pour out my spirit. He's talking about a future restoration. He's giving the people hope that it won't always be the way that it is now. Now, I'll be honest, those verses get used by some of our more charismatic friends to justify all kinds of things that they think are appropriate in a spiritual context or a church context. 
But I think when you read the book of Joel and you read about this promise of the Spirit, I don't think it gives us license to say, you know, we don't need the Scriptures anymore. God's just going to speak to us through dreams or through visions or we're going to rely on these things. I don't think that's really his point. I think what Joel is saying, you remember the timeline? He comes way at the end, way after Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all the rest of them, way at the end. And I think what he's saying fits in with what the other major prophets have said. For example, Isaiah 59. The prophet says, a day is coming where God will pour his spirit out on all of his people. The end of the book of Isaiah is very, very hopeful. It's promising new things, good things, great things for God's people. And part of that is God pouring his spirit out. The prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 31, there's a day coming where God will make a new covenant with his people. And when he makes a new covenant with his people, all of them, from the least to the greatest, will know him as the Lord. They'll all know him. He'll be intimate with them. Ezekiel 36, the prophet says, God's going to do a new thing among his people and he's going to do it through his spirit. This new covenant is going to come through the spirit that he's going to put in to his people. He's going to take out the heart of stone, the one that needs to be rent in half, and he's going to give you a heart of flesh, and he's going to do that through his spirit. And here comes Joel just adding his voice to what all these prophets have said, and he says, the spirit is going to come. I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. He says it in verse 28, and he says it again in verse 29. There's restoration There's hope, but there's also a call to repentance. And there's also this this promise that judgment could be coming if the people don't repent. So that's Joel, and he lived a long time ago. And he wrote this short book a long time ago. And the question is, what do we do with it today? And I want to just suggest four responses that I think would be appropriate. Number one, we recognize God's sovereignty We must walk away from this book recognizing that God is sovereign. He does whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. No one stays his hand. He does not need your permission or my permission. He is in complete control of everything. You say, where do you see that in the book of Joel? First, you see it in the locust plague. I mean, God told his people hundreds of years earlier, this is exactly what I'm going to do if you go in this direction. They went in that direction, and he did it. Joel doesn't say, man, sure is a tragedy about all the locusts that just rolled through. Yeah, you caught, a, you caught a tough break on that one. He paints the whole scene in the terms of God sending judgment on his people. He doesn't feel ashamed in saying, God sent this disaster on you. And when he starts to talk about this army in chapter 2, He doesn't just say, an army's coming and God's going to let them march against you. He's going to allow this thing to happen. He describes this terrifying army that's coming to destroy the people. And look what he says in Joel 2, verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army. You say, wait a minute. Is he talking in verse 11 about the Israeli army, the Jewish army, the Hebrew army? No. He's talking about the pagan army. The one that he starts describing as 
Like blackness, these people are spread out on the mountains. Their like has never before been. It will not be after them through all the years of all generations. This army coming in judgment. Whose is it? Joel says it's the Lord's army. He's sending the judgment. If you read the book of Joel and you get uncomfortable with God actively sending these judgments against, against his people, against his, his nation... You're going to be really uncomfortable when you get to the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts says, on the heels of Jesus being crucified, that God was the one who was in sovereign, complete control of the worst evil that ever happened on this earth. God was the one who poured out judgment on his son. Listen to what Luke tells us in Acts 2. It says, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Delivered up to be killed, to be murdered, to be crucified, according to God's definite plan. There was no plan B. There was no chance it wasn't going to happen. God planned it and God executed it. Just a few chapters later, Acts 4. Wicked men did whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. They were wicked, they were responsible, but all they did was what God had already predestined to take place. When you read it in Joel... You read it in Acts, you come away saying, God's in complete control of this. He's not just responding to us. He's not just trying to make the best out of a bad situation. He has a plan, and he's going to execute that plan. That plan may involve bringing judgment on his people. That plan may involve bringing judgment on his son. But God has a plan, and he's going to see it through. He's sovereign. That was true in Joel's day. It was true in Luke's day. It's true in our day. So we recognize that. Secondly, we practice genuine repentance. If that's what God wanted from his people then, we have no reason to believe it's not what he wants from his people now. Joel 2, verse 12 and 13, one more time. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, fasting, weeping, mourning, rend your hearts, not your garments. Don't put on this external show of being spiritual, rending your garment, rend your heart. It's got to be genuine. It's got to be real. Why should we do this? Look what he says. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. You realize every time that we celebrate baptism as a church family, this is what we're celebrating. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The one that comes and is plunged beneath the water is openly saying to me and you and everyone else, I deserve the judgment of God. I deserve to die. The old me deserves to be plunged under the water in judgment. But God is gracious and he's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love and he's relented of the disaster that I deserved. We don't just do it as an external show of spirituality. We do it because of what God's done in our hearts. And hopefully behind that, for those who are baptized today, for those who will be baptized in a few weeks, is this idea. Return to the Lord with all your heart. Rend your heart and not your garments. 
Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. We sang about it earlier. In the song that we sang right after the baptism, there's a line that says, Break my heart for what breaks yours. Right? That's the idea of rending your heart. Break it. Destroy it. I want to see sin the way you see sin. I want to be moved to genuine repentance. I want my thoughts about sin to be lined up with your thoughts about sin, and I want there to be a real change in my life. To the Corinthians, Paul describes it as godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. And he says, look, there's a form of worldly sorrow. It's like the rending of your garment. It's all external. It's all for show. It's all for play. It's just the the motions you're going through, the game that you're sort of checking off the boxes in. But then there's godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow, Paul says, leads to death. Godly sorrow leads to life and salvation. That's what Joel's talking about. Not a worldly show of repentance, but a godly experience of grief and true repentance. So we practice genuine repentance. Number three, we remember that the day of the Lord has come. Past tense. It has come. In a very real, say, uh, real sense, you could say that the day of the Lord came at the cross. When judgment was poured out on God's Son, God took decisive action in judgment to save His people. You could say that's the day of the Lord. You could also connect it to the day of Pentecost. That's what the New Testament does. We read this promise in Joel 2 about it will come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. In those days I will pour out my Spirit. And in the book of Acts, we read that verse quoted And Peter says, it's happened. What God promised through Joel happened. He sent his spirit on his people. It's a new day. God has taken decisive action for his people. And because it has happened past tense, look at Joel chapter 2, verse 32. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Some of you grew up in Bible drill, or some of you have kids who are in Awana, and you read that verse in Joel, and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought that was in Romans 10. Well, Paul took it right out of Joel and dropped it right into Romans 10. And he says, if you will call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. You can do that today. Some of you have maybe never done that. Maybe all you've ever done is played the external church game. The rending of garments and not of hearts. Maybe you've got me fooled. Maybe you've got your family fooled. Maybe you've got the people in your Sunday school class fooled. Maybe you've got Facebook fooled. But maybe it's all just the rending of garments. And what you need to hear is Joel saying, rend your heart. It's got to be genuine. It's got to be real. And if you will call on the name of the Lord for salvation, you will be saved. Number four, we remember that the day of the Lord is coming. It is coming. I want you to look at a verse towards the end of the book. Joel chapter 3 verse 10. The book ends on a somewhat ominous note. There is this hope of restoration. 
There's this hope that the Spirit will be poured out on God's people. But there's also this idea that God is going to judge his enemies. Joel 3.10, the prophet says, Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. That verse is the exact opposite of what you find two other places in the Old Testament. You find the exact opposite command. In two other places you find the command, take your sword and turn it into a plow. There's going to be no more fighting. God's made peace with his people. But here the prophet takes it and he flips it on his head and he says, there's going to be one last fight. One last fight. And if you're not calling on the name of the Lord for salvation, you're going to be in that fight. And Joel describes it as a terrible day. And I've given you some verses you can look up in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians and one of Peter's letters. You can read these verses that promise all of them. The day of the Lord is coming. A terrible day. A day of judgment. A day of a final battle. A day of a final reckoning. A day where all wrongs will be set right. And you and I need to remember that this prophet who lived thousands of years ago has something to say to us. And what he says is, that day is still coming. It's coming. You won't be able to avoid it. But you can survive it. The way you survive it, I'll just give you a hint. It's not by taking your plow and turning it into a really good sword. Because those people end up dead. The way you survive it is you just call on the name of the Lord for salvation. You rend your heart and you say, God, I deserve all of the judgment that you're going to pour out on this earth. It deserves to fall on me. But I'm calling out to you for salvation. I'm asking you to pour your spirit into my life. I want to tear up my old heart. It's of no value and I need a new heart. And I'm calling on you to save me. I'm going to ask you to bow and we're going to pray.